and welcome to Football Scotland Daily, the podcast that brings you all the big news, analysis and debate Monday to Friday, just in time for your daily commute. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today is a man behind Old Firm Facts, a Twitter account that gets everybody laughing. It's Adam Miller. How you doing? He's not laughing at that introduction. And uh, Gaby McKay. The Twitter account that gets no one laughing. <laughs> <laughs> On the pod today, Christopher Julian becomes Celtic's second biggest signing of all time as he signs a £7 million deal. Jim Goodwin replaces Oren Kearney as the manager of St Mirren. And after Lee Griffiths opens up about his depression, we take a look at football and mental health. Okay, well, we're going to start with uh, Christopher Julian signing for Celtic. Big, impressive-looking defender. Gaby, is this worrying for the rest of the league that Celtic have the financial capacity to go out and sign a player who is worth more than probably the bottom six clubs combined? Well, I think it would be, yeah. I think it's uh, eight, 8 million euro it was reported in Lee as, so about 7.2 million pounds, which is just the kind of fee that I don't think anybody else in Scotland could possibly get near paying. Even Rangers couldn't afford to pay that kind of that kind of money. Uh, so I think it defi- definitely is. It's a big statement of intent by Celtic. He's 26, so it's not even one necessarily for the future. They've obviously brought him in now uh, to perform now rather than to build him up and sell him on. I guess that's a response to, to last season when Celtic maybe, although they still won the league by nine points, they maybe weren't quite as, as dominant as they have been in, in recent seasons. Uh, and it's it's quite, certainly looking at it, it looks like they've got quite an impressive defensive lineup now. You know, you've got Ayer, you've got Simunovic, you've now got Julien, which certainly, I think, looks stronger than any of the other teams in the division. And yeah, it's a bit of a statement of intent, I think. Yeah, anyone who listens to this podcast on a regular basis will know I regularly humiliate myself with my pronunciation and Gaby has already pointed me in the right direction that is Julien and not the anglicised Julian, uh, as in Julian Dix. Adam, um... Interesting segue there, Dix, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Don't take it personally. This is a a signing of obviously serious intent, as we've discussed. Do you think he can bring the kind of chops that Celtic require. Obviously, we know that he's coming for seven million. In terms of what we've seen of him, he's left-footed, he's six foot five. Is this the kind of player that will take Celtic to the next level, perhaps, in Europe? Uh, I think it would be dishonest of any of us to sit and say we've been following this guy's career for a long time. I've watched 10 minutes on YouTube, so I am now an expert. You've now watched 10 (laughs) minutes more of his career than I have. But that's basically, we're all in the same boat here where we're going off short clips of him and what people are saying about him online who have watched him and the consensus seems to be this is a good player this is a a really quality player yesterday on the podcast I was saying we were talking about the Turnbull deal collapsing and I was saying that as much as uh, some Celtic fans might feel a sense of frustration you can only really judge a transfer window once it's finished and I think uh, I was saying yesterday uh, for all we know, Celtic could have several deals that they're about to announce. Well, they've announced one of them today, and I think just looking at the figures involved in the eight million euros, as Gaby was saying, uh, that there is the standout signing of the summer in Scottish football so far. Now, Celtic and Rangers and any other team might make more signings as the window progresses, but right now, that is the the biggest statement of intent. And I think it was a position that Celtic did need to get stronger in, and they've done that. Looking at the guy, that is a big, physical, imposing guy. Um, whether that 
you know whether that fee uh, translates into success you can never tell but I think the, the signs are good there for Celtic um, and I think there will be more to come as well Is that the positive thing from uh, from a Celtic fan point of view Gaby in terms of potentially selling Kieran Tierney if they do realise the £25 million fee that they want for him it does mean that they can go and splash out for another three or four players of this standing without having lost any money in terms of the balance sheet. It definitely does, yeah. Obviously, then it's, it depends who you're competing against. I mean, I think, uh, well, certainly according to the French media reports I read, Julian had quite a difficult season last season, so there maybe wasn't the same interest out there that otherwise might have been, which maybe the, the reason that Celtic have been able to get him. And they've obviously moved quickly to get him when we saw... Was it Monday night that we heard they had a bid accepted and he's obviously signed today? So they've obviously been very keen to get it over the line. If they can get that kind of money for Tierney, then that obviously does open up open up the possibility of getting several players like of his standing. As you say, the only question would be then if you're facing competition, maybe from the Premier League or from other places, in the way that they didn't appear to be for Julia. As Gaby says, Adam, uh, he had, did have a difficult season last year um, and my understanding was there were a number of Premier League clubs sniffing around um, but were put off by his performances. That leads me to ask you, what does £7 million actually get you nowadays? Especially in this era of the £30 million transfer being uh, just commonplace in that league and the top, top players going for ridiculous sums of money. We saw Coutinho go for £160 million. So what guarantee of quality for European competition do you think that does actually give you? £7 million today means a lot less than £7 million did when, say, Andy Cole signed for Man United for £7 million and he was the top striker in Britain, bar, say, Alan Shearer. Completely different times now. I think uh, £7 million can still be a, a reasonable amount to spend on someone... In the context of Scottish football, um, it's the second biggest transfer uh, spent by Celtic. Um, but I don't want to doubt uh, Celtic's scouting policy here because they've got a record, uh, you know, maybe a bit more hit and miss over the last couple of years. But if you take the last five or six years, they've really made some smart signings for relatively low fees from of players that we weren't familiar with before. Obviously, the biggest example being Van Dyke, um, but there are other examples as well. Wanyama, guys that have been brought in, in over the last sort of five, ten years, and Celtic have managed to sell on because Celtic, like any other team in Scotland, are in many ways a selling club. They've managed to get two or three years out of success of success out of them, and then sell them for a huge increase on what they paid for them. Um, it may well turn out that he's one of those guys. So seven million is not will not get you anything in the English Premier League. But if Celtic have been scouting this guy for a while, they've obviously seen something they like. And uh, yeah, I feel like it, you know, based on what we've heard about him, he's got the potential to be a big success. Gaby, that uh, thing that they've seen that they like. It seems that Celtic uh, pinpoint this quite early as the physicality of a player to bring them into Scotland. They know that it's going to be a league that's going to test a foreign player's ability to handle that kind of environment. But this guy at six foot five, one of the best headers of the ball in the French league, seems like he's tailor made in so many aspects of his game for this league. Yeah, well, I think the last uh, defender Celtic signed from Toulouse was Bobo Balde, wasn't it? So it's obviously where you go if you want a big unit at the back, is you just go to Toulouse. But yeah, certainly, certainly looking at him, I mean, I'm, I'm much like you guys. I saw I saw a couple of Toulouse games last season, but I can't say I've seen too much of them. But certainly, 
uh, just looking at him, he certainly looks an imposing figure. Uh, you saw the picture of him going into Celtic Park, he's towering above everyone else. He certainly doesn't look like someone who'll be easily bullied uh, by the forwards in the in the Scottish Premiership. Uh, I'm not sure how, if he's uh, one of those who's got good feet for a big man, how mobile he is, I don't really know. But certainly, just looking at him, you'd think he, he'll be able to kind of handle the sort of rough and tumble nature of, of the league. And as I say, if you look at the other two centre-backs they've got, Simunovic and Ayer, I think both are capable of, of mixing it while also being good on the ball. So they're certainly looking strong at the back. Celtic now, I think, well, certainly at centre-back. We, we, we know all about the issues at right-back and we don't know if Tierney's going to go, but certainly the spine of the team, I think, looks pretty pretty solid going into the new season. Yeah, I think from what I've seen of him, he looks like a player that um, certainly has the, the long limbs to sort of stretch out a leg, put in a last-ditch tackle or just nick the ball away. Uh, a lot of the footage showed that he's very capable of that, but I would imagine at six foot five, like any player of that height, he might struggle with a small, nimble player getting around his, his feet with a low centre of balance. So I think Alfredo Morelos versus uh, this player is going to be very interesting as we see the season progress. That is if Morelos stays at Rangers, but time will tell. We're going to move on now to Jim Goodwin, who's been appointed the manager of St Mirren. That, of course, comes after Oren Kearney left the club uh, in a little bit of controversy. Uh, in the last week. Where do you think this leaves the club, Adam? I mean, he's a, he's a club legend. He's played for, for them for a, for a number of years, so he knows exactly what, what is going to be the requirements there. Um, but it's a big step up from part-time football at Alloa. It is, and there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to reproduce the sort of love that he generated from the fans as a player during his time as a manager. Certainly he'll get a warm welcome. Um, but it's it was a really big blow for St Mirren to lose Oren, it was a really big blow for St Mirren to lose Oren Kearney um, given given the kind of feel-good factor that there was around the club when he uh, avoided relegation at the end of the season. Um, I think Goodwin will have the goodwill from the fans when he goes in there. He's not the type of guy to shirk a challenge. He'll obviously be, you know... I'm sure one of his assets will be his ability to motivate players, um, but he's yet to be tested in this kind of environment, um, and so time will tell whether he's actually a success. Yeah, I think he obviously has a lot of credit in the bank from his time at St Mirren as a player. He captained them to the, to the League Cup. He worked under Jack Ross at Allo, I think, so there's obviously a connection there with the, with the, well, obviously Ross is well regarded uh, by St Mirren, St Mirren fans. So there's that, but like you say, it's a big step up from part-time football. You'd imagine St Mirren would be wanting a bit more of a more sort of cultured style. You know, if you're at Alloa and you're a part-time team, it's all about staying in the division however you do it. But you'd think St Mirren, having stayed up last season, would want to be progressing and playing some playing some better football, sort of making sure that they're solidly away from the relegation zone. Uh, obviously, Goodwin was... The horrible player to watch. Uh, so I mean, really, don't hold back, Gaby. Just uh, say what you think. Oh, look, Goodwin was an absolute thug on the pitch. He wasn't. It wasn't even the sort of Kalini Sergio Ramos thing with you know like the sort of skill mixed with brutality. It was just sheer brutality. Uh, but obviously, I guess he, if he's on your team, you probably you probably enjoy it. But uh, let's hope he doesn't listen to this podcast for your sake, Gaby. Yeah, I know. I'm worried. Yeah, yeah. I take, I take it all back. He seems like the kind of guy that will find me. I don't want Jim Good. You don't want to be walking around knowing that somewhere out there, Jim Goodwin is angry with you. Well, there's probably I think going to be some point next week where we turn up at our desks and it's just going to be Jim Goodwin and Frank McAvaney <laughs> and Alan Stubbs and Alan Stubbs. 
yeah. and a queue of others. Um, but let's not go into that. So, in terms of what would look like a good season for St Mirren Adam, for me, I look at them and think, given the tumult, given the fact that there's another manager coming in, I know it's early in pre-season, but it's still coming into another manager's pre-season plans. Yeah. He, he's not got the pre-season that, that, that Jim Goodwin wants. He's not had the opportunity to organise that the way he would want. And I'm sure... You know, it doesn't take that long to get in place your ideas for how you want the, the, the squad to develop and how you want them to go about their fitness. But at the same time, it's still, a, a, I would think, a significant upheaval for him. It's not ideal. So I would look at it and think, get away from relegation, maybe even finish ninth or 10th, and that would be a good season for St Man. But you've got people like Tony Fitzpatrick at the club who are talking about them being a top six club, even maybe even a top four club. I mean, what are they actually looking for and what does good realistically look like? That's all very well saying that, but given the evidence of what was on the pitch last season, I think anything uh, anything that involves survival is good enough for St Mirren next season. Obviously, that's not an exciting prospect to be saying to the fans that you know, you're going to be... Uh, only aiming for survival. It's nice to be able to say, yeah, we're going to be going for the top six, but honestly, I, I think if you told a St Mirren fan right now that they would survive next season, uh, that would be the main thing. Yeah, I think you'd take seventh or eighth comfortable. You know, if St Mirren get, I don't know, 45 to 50 points next season, I think that would have to be considered a, a pretty successful season if they can just stay away comfortably from that that sort of relegation zone. You know, the kind of season like Motherwell had last year where I know towards the end of the season they were sort of, could have been in the top six, but I think for St Mirren, 7th, 8th, ninth, comfortably staying up, I think would be would be the realistic aim and I think that would be a good season if they achieve that. Let's not kick Jim Goodwin anymore. I wouldn't dare. Because <laughs> we know he can kick back and hard, but let's talk more generally about clubs that pick up managers that have been former players. Gabby, you and myself were on the podcast when Angelo Alessio was announced. We both praised Kilmarnock for having the um, the gumption and the bravery to go outside the box and looking for someone that was the best, that they feel was the best candidate that came from a much wider pool than the usual suspects in Scottish football. <laughs> Do you defend a club's decision to go for someone that knows the club that's been at the club before? Does that even matter? Is it overestimated in football? I think it probably is overestimated. It, obviously, it always just comes down to who the manager is. You saw it worked out for Jack Ross in St Mirren. It's worked out for Neil Lennon at Celtic, certainly in his first spell. But then, you know, you look at Gary Locke at Hearts and Kilmarnock. Now, Gary Locke obviously is a hopeless manager, but those clubs <laughs> went for him because... That's another one that's going to be in next week. <laughs> right, that's indisputable. There is no way... To, even Gary Locke <laughs> knows he's a useless manager. Um, yeah, so it, de- it depends who it is, I think. I think it is a little bit unimaginative to just go, oh, let's go and get this guy because he's a former player. Because just because you're a, a club legend or even someone who's just performed well for the club, it doesn't mean that you necessarily will know how to manage that club. In many ways, it might make it more difficult because you probably sort of have a set way of doing things that you had when you were a player and maybe that's not what's necessary uh, sort of in this day and age if you come into a club where it's been done the same way for 10 years 15 years maybe a manager would be well served coming in and changing things up but if you played there you're probably going to stick to what you know the pressure might be more on you if you have a sort of emotional connection to the club so I think yeah I think it just depends who I mean we'll see what happens with Goodwin he's only had that Aloha job which as we've said is part time he did well he got them promoted then he kept them up but I think it just really depends on the man you're appointing 
Yep, I would I would agree with that. I think it's just uh, it doesn't really matter whether they've been there or not. It's purely about the caliber of the guy. Mm. But I suppose you you do see it quite happening a significant amount of time. So clubs obviously feel that there is something intrinsic that that about being part of the furniture that gives you an element that, that, that sets you apart from, say, someone who hasn't been at the club at all. Presumably, that is some sort of connection with the fans that goes beyond... Yeah, presumably just to let the new man sort of start off with goodwill because the fans are on side. I mean, you look at Manchester United appointing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager when he's managed what Cardiff and Mulder. Now, there's no way if he wasn't a Manchester United legend he'd have ever been anywhere near that job. It's because he's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I think for boards, especially clubs that are struggling, you, if you get in a manager who the fans like, you know, so look at St Mirren, Kearney was a popular manager. He's left, he's left ostensibly because of a falling out with the board. Now you could imagine there might be a little bit of a backlash from St Mirren fans about that who aren't happy to see him go. So what do you do? You appoint the guy who captained them to the 2013 League Cup. Yeah. If, you look at Gary Caldwell, for example, at Partick Thistle, Adam. He's a, a, a guy that has no... Um, background with the club. Now, if that had been a Partick Thistle legend, um, say, uh, um, name a Partick Thistle legend to me. Alan Archibald. And Alan (laughs) Archibald. Someone with a background and a history of the club, say Chick Charnley, although I don't think the Partick Thistle fans would be that keen on that. Would they then look at the record that, that Gary Caldwell had and look at the bright side rather than always looking for the negatives? In terms of um, Gary Caldwell obviously ended up finishing, I think, uh, sixth in the league. Um, But fans will still look at the the journey to get to sixth because some of them weren't happy with Gary Caldwell. Now, that seems to be slightly changing as time goes on. Um, Because he doesn't have that link up to the club, they're more likely to look at the negatives if they they take badly to a manager. Whereas if you've got someone there, they've already got a relationship with. Fans will naturally... um, Give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, like Gaby said before, you get a degree of goodwill if you've been at the club before and that maybe buys you a little bit of time at the start. But ultimately that shouldn't count for much beyond the first few weeks. Um, and it comes down to how good a job you're doing, regardless of whether you've played for the club for 20 years or you've just arrived with very little kind of experience with them in the past. Um, really, it just comes down to the impact that you have every day on the training pitch and then in the games at the weekend and uh, I think there's sometimes a bit too much sentiment attached to former players coming in it seems like a kind of quick fix and you go well great they know the infrastructure and they understand the history but uh, I I think this idea of you know getting a, a, a proper man who understands our club is a bit overrated. Okay we're going to move on now to um uh uh topic um, that we have uh, been introduced to today through Neo... Uh, okay, we're going to move on now to um, mental health in football. This has obviously come about as a discussion point because of Lee uh, Lee Griffith's comments in the press today uh, talking about his depression and how it affected him and the way Brendan Rogers dealt with that in such a positive way. Adam, was this heartening? You've written a piece today in Football Scotland looking at this and, and saying that, that Celtic needs to be um, recognised for what they've done on this because it, it's not a subject where football clubs have covered themselves in glory in the past. Not particularly, no. And I know it's not very fashionable at the moment to give Brendan Rodgers any sort of credit, but 
I think you have to the fact that Lee Griffiths has recognised the way in which Rogers supported them. I think the key thing in all this was uh, from Griffiths' comments yesterday. It wasn't Griffiths who approached Rogers and said, I need some time away from football. Rogers was able to kind of detect that in Griffiths and make that offer himself and say, you know, don't rush back, just get yourself better. And that, in you know, as people who haven't worked in football clubs before, that might seem like a fairly obvious thing to do, a fairly natural course of action. But football clubs operate in a, a massively different environment than desk jobs, office jobs, any other real line of work. Um, so that is a big step forward. That Bre- Not only that Brendan Rodgers offered Lee Griffiths the time off work, um, but that the way he spoke about it publicly, he was very supportive of Griffiths. Um, the language that he used when he was talking about it at the time, um, he got over the kind of the sort of gravity of the issue, and he talked about it being a mental health issue. Rogers, when he was talking to the press at the time, but he didn't go into specifics, so there was no invasion of Griffiths' kind of privacy, but there was enough of a kind of impact in what Rogers was saying that people, fans, media would know to treat the situation with the respect that it deserves. Um, and he sort of outlined the fact that he wasn't rushing Griffiths back, that it was about him getting better and coming back when he's ready to come back. And again, that might seem like an obvious thing for someone to say, but it doesn't happen enough in football. So you read quite a lot of the time now interviews with players whose careers haven't, you know, ex-pros whose careers didn't end the way that they'd like them to have done. And you look, and a lot of the time they talk about mental health issues and they say that in the 90s or even 10 years ago, you just couldn't bring that kind of stuff up at your club. People would, people around you would see it as a sign of weakness. You, if you told your manager that, you worried that the manager would drop you or try and farm you out and that you might be seen as weak in the dressing room, which is traditionally a very kind of macho environment where you don't talk about your feelings. So I think Griffiths deserves credit for being open about what he's been going through. Um, but I think Rogers, in particular deserves credit for being sympathetic to that and sensitive in his language around it, understanding the gravity of the situation and making it clear that the player's well-being and the person's well-being was far more important than the goals that he could have been offering Celtic between December and now when he's starting to come back. So Griffiths, would, if he remained in the team, Griffiths would have probably kept scoring goals. I know Edward is obviously a sort of better all-round player, but it's hard to think of a more a better kind of more natural goal scorer than Lee Griffiths in Scottish football. So if Griffiths had been in that team, he'd have still been scoring goals, but his issues would have been harder and harder for him to deal with because he wouldn't have been getting the time away from the game. Well, he talked about that. He said that if he'd continued to play, he may have ended up causing himself harm. He was very keen to point out that Celtic's action in giving him that time off made all the difference. And we know ourselves that a lot of football clubs out there would have looked at Lee Griffiths if they had that type of player on their team and said, geez, this is a guy that can score us goals to get us out of really, really big holes in games. This is a guy we need every week in, 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 in the team. Now, I know Celtic have strength and depth, but at the same time, they don't have another Lee Griffiths. So uh, they deserve a lot of credit for this, don't they, Gaby? Yeah, they absolutely deserve a huge amount of credit. I think just going back to what Adam was saying, I remember reading the former defender, Ryan O'Leary, that he said he struggled with depression uh, when he was at Aberdeen, when he was at Kilmarnock, and that uh, Jimmy Calderwood, who managed it both, just didn't know how to deal with it 
that you know, like it's like Adam said, you know, that this player's this, you know, he's, he's weak, he's, he's he's no good, he doesn't have the doesn't have the right mentality, which I think is very much uh, probably among a sort of older, more traditional, would you say, sort of football fraternity. That probably is is the message. But you look at uh, you know, you look at Griffiths, what he's done. You look at Chris Boyd, he's got his foundation yeah. after his his brother uh, killed himself. You look. Even outside of there, you've had footballers talking about depression. I've seen uh, Gigi Buffon saying he suffered with depression when he was. So I think there is a there's a sort of changing narrative. I think around it, it's slowly changing, but I think this kind of thing really does help. That Celtic being able to say to a player, "Look, just go off and get yourself well," and you know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think even ten years ago, probably even five years ago, you might not have got that thing. I think the conversation is changing. There's, there's. I think you look at it uh, just in terms of what Rogers was saying. He says we're going to give him all the professional help he needs to get him back in a good place again. As I was saying before, that sounds like a really simple easy thing to say if you're in a different line of work so if I came to you and said that I was struggling with certain issues I don't doubt that you would have talked to me like that but I I couldn't guarantee that if I was a footballer and you were my manager that every football manager would act that way and you look in terms of what Gabe was saying about the the differences in say Ryan O'Leary's case or various other players from previous generations Stan Collymore was a very very high profile case of a player who acknowledged his issues with depression, and this was in the 90s when he was one of the Roundly top, mocked. Roundly mocked, and one of the top strikers in Britain at the time, roundly mocked, and his manager, John Gregory, at Villa, said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure he said something at the time of, what has he got to be depressed about? He's earning X amount a week and he's playing in the Premier League, or the Premiership as it was possibly. But uh, That, to me, illustrates the massive sort of change in thinking around that. So if Stan Collymore had come out uh, if Stan Collymore was playing today and had said that, I think he would be offered a lot more support behind the scenes at Aston Villa and also publicly he would be seen as an example to people in terms of how he was dealing with it. Um, it's unfortunate that this kind of thing was going on in the 90s and we're still seeing the legacy of it with a lot of players. But the way Rodgers has handled this just now, uh, or last season, I think is an example to a lot of people. Just before we go, Gaby, if you look at the, the nuts and bolts of professional football, is the surprise here maybe that there's not been more players when you think about the cutthroat nature of the, inju- of the industry, the threat of injury, the transient nature of contracts, the problems associated with being high profile? Is it surprising that there isn't more of these issues coming out? I think probably there are a lot more people with these issues than we know. They're probably just afraid to talk about it, which, as I say, I think is a good thing. I think the conversation has changed in recent years with the examples. I mean, you know, if a guy that you look at on the pitch like Buffon, who's always, you know, he's very sort of shouting and organising, he seems very outgoing on the pitch. If he can say, you know, he was having panic attacks before games, I think anybody can. We've seen, unfortunately, tragic cases in football, the likes of Gary Speed, Robert Enka, people who obviously needed help and didn't seek it. I think, as you say, with the with such a high-pressure job, with such demands on you, which is so cutthroat, I imagine it's more widespread than we even know. I think it probably is hugely widespread players after they retire. You know, if you think, if you've gone from, you probably go into training at the club every day from when you're 14 to, I don't know, 36, and then after that, you know, you're suddenly you're not in the dressing room, you're not playing every Saturday... I'm sure there are a lot of footballers who have suffered with depression and other issues like that post-retirement because that must be very difficult to deal with. 
but again, I think all we can do is just hope that the conversation kind of keeps moving forward, keeps changing, and Celtic taking actions like this, I think, is a, a helpful step along that path. Absolutely, and that's a great way for us to end. And well done to Lee Griffiths for being so open and honest about his issues. I'm sure it will help a lot of other people. That's all from us here at Football Scotland for today. We will be back on Monday, just in time to make your daily work commute that little bit more bearable. You can get more from us at the Football Scotland website, on our social media channels, on Facebook and Twitter, at football underscore Scott. To ask a question or to make a comment to us individually, you can give me pelters on at Johnny R. McFarlane. You can contact Gaby at Gaby McKay. And of course, you can get Adam at Old Fun Facts 1. Until Monday, thanks for listening. <laughs>